Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Is there a lack of confidence at Hamilton City Hall surrounding disclosure? Ontario's new gas pump decals to warn against the federal carbon tax are going to be going up in time for the federal election campaign. And the Trump administration has unveiled a sweeping rule that some say could cut immigration to the states by half by denying visas to hundreds of thousands of people because they're poor. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, I want to delve a little deeper into the t- topics that we've been talking about about Hamilton City Hall over the last couple of days because it's somewhat problematic. Is there a lack of confidence in City Hall? I talked to uh, Councillor Cherry Whitehead about this yesterday, and this was, of course, in view of the fact that there was yet another staff report that uh, actually dates back, in, well, well, in some cases, five or six years. There are a couple of them that we need to talk about here. Uh, and uh, council passed this, I allocated money for it, and the work didn't get done in a very timely fashion. It's done now, apparently, but uh, you, you have to ask yourself, in light of that, and of course the, we all know about what's going on with the Red Hill Valley, and uh, there seemed to be a lack of communication between staff and council on that as well. Uh, and of course we've got the other issues to do with human rights and, and hate, et cetera, et cetera. So what is happening at City Hall? I know Councillor Brad Clark has talked about the idea that maybe he, the councillors need to sit down and have a session about this. Maybe it's time for them to regroup and maybe educate themselves about some of the issues that are going on. But what about that relationship between staff and council? Let's uh, bring former Hamilton Mayor Larry Danny into the conversation as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Larry, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm well, thank you. Good. You've been following these stories, Larry, and there's a a, a plethora of information here that we have about what seems to be, I guess, a lot of different things we could categorize this. A lack of communication might be uh, some councillors, off the record anyway, that I've talked to are suggesting there's there's a problem with a a, a trust issue now between staff and council. What do you you see happening here? Well, yes, I have been following events, and I don't know whether the the general community is following them closely um, or not, but it hasn't been a sleepy summer, that's for sure. There's been lots of issues uh, to sort of uh, keep those of us interested in politics and local politics, especially um, uh, scratching our heads sometimes. Um, in terms of in terms of uh, the issues related to um, you know maintenance and uh, having to to prevent accidents from happening, uh, I, I'm puzzled by that. I mean, I am absolutely puzzled <clears throat> by the fact that if, uh, there seems to have been some reports suggesting that maintenance needed to be done uh, on some of the overpasses and some of the uh, structures hanging over the overpasses several years ago and somehow they were not attended to and the reason i'm 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 puzzled by that is is that they rushed once once the new management and there are new people in charge there found these reports they rushed to close the uh the uh uh, access ways uh, along the the link and and the uh, red hill to fix these structures and so somebody felt that there was some emergency to doing that right now or are they skittish are they concerned that because there's this inquiry going on if somehow these things were to be found out later on and have not been acted on uh, then they could be the current crop of managers could be uh, rightly criticized well whichever of those scenarios it is it doesn't speak well of uh, whatever due diligence staff does to decide what work needs to be done and when it needs to be done it. I, I'm, you know, my experience, and maybe yours is the same, Bill, staff never shied away 
from presenting to council when catastrophic things were about to happen and we needed to, to take some action. Yeah. The biggest example of that was when they vacated <clears throat> the current city hall, stripped it down to its, its bare structure, and rebuilt it again. And the reason we were given, and I was in the chair at the time, and I think you were on council as well, the reason we were given at the time was that there was a catastrophic failure with some important aspects of City Hall. Uh, the elevators, uh, for example, but more importantly, where all the city records were kept, where the computer systems were kept. And if there had been some catastrophic failure, it would have had reverberations right across the municipality for everybody in the city. And so they vacated it. So staff has never been shy about that. And and the fact that, that they are getting late at some of these functions deserves some answers, for sure. Well, uh, to be sure, and, and like I say, I, I, I get a little nervous, and I'm not trying to get into the conspiracy theory uh, realm here, but for instance, uh, you know, when I was talking to a couple of counselors, Brad Clark and Terry Whitehead were both on the show yesterday, and uh, to do with the, the link report that has just come to light now over the last couple of days that you've just alluded to, Larry, Staff, apparently, from the reporting we've seen on this, say, look, it was really no big deal. But uh, then I find out from Councillor Whitehead that they did go into camera to talk about this. And, the, and he said the topic, he says, I can't get into details, of course, when you're in camera, but he says the topic in camera was about liability, which tells me, yeah, it is, this is a big deal, because they were concerned that something could be happening here. Now, but now, now they're trying to make it, you know, like, oh, no, 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 nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Yeah, there is. Well, and, and of course, you know, I, I wasn't part of those discussions either, so I don't know what staff had to say. And I trust, you know, you got two very experienced counselors, mm-hmm. Clark and, and Whitehead, uh, who were in on those discussions. Uh, the, the, the proof of the pudding is in their action. The fact that they rushed, um, unannounced almost, uh, to, to fix uh, what problems presented themselves uh, indicates that it was big enough a deal to to divert traffic and inconvenience riders on some very busy access points in order to do work that needed to be done. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not so sure that, that the answer is as simple as it was routine kind of maintenance. Uh, maybe two years ago, um, if, if uh, um, it had been done over time, you could kind of accept that. And, and listen, I, I trust, I know certainly the general manager in public works Great guy, worked with him, responsible, thoughtful, calm, uh, and I trust his judgment. But but he has people working below him as well whose, whose advice he relies on also uh, that need uh, to, to uh, maybe be looked at in terms of the kind of advice that was given to make sure that, that these things do not happen again. I, I, I don't buy that somebody purposely tried to thwart public safety for some nefarious reason. That makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. Uh, but the fact that they got to some important project late in the game uh, suggests that there's something wrong with the decision-making thinking, and that needs to be reviewed at the very least. Well, in light of the, the Red Hill fiasco that's, uh, that's still being investigated, we understand that. There's an inquiry that's going into that right now. But we know, that because it's on record, that there was some misinformation. I mean, staff uh, gave what I consider to be incorrect information about the safety value of the road. Uh, and it's on tape. I mean, we've seen this now. This is not anecdotal information that we've seen. Uh, and you have to wonder just what's going on here and who's making the decisions about what should and shouldn't be done here. It's supposed to be city council. 
and staff's job is to basically enact the policies that council suggests that need to be done. I'm not so sure that's going on right now, and I'm not so sure if there's there's a, an element of, of mistrust right now where we say, look, I'm not sure these guys are doing what we're asking them to do. So, you know, council can only act on information that's uh, presented to them, and it's up to senior management to make sure that council gets not only the information that they need, but the advice uh, that that underlines the uh, uh, suggestions that they make, the recommendations that they make, so council can make informed decisions. Uh, I'm not sure we know yet uh, fully, because there's an investigation going on, uh, where things broke down, if they even broke down, by the way, and I'm still, I'm still of the opinion that we need to wait for the entirety of the report um, in order to make some determination on whether uh, some thoughtful um, uh, consideration was given to uh, to the report that supposedly surfaced late. Around, I'm talking about the Red Hill in this case. Yeah. Uh, and and it was thought by whichever expert looked at it that it wasn't as crucially uh, in need of attention as we now hindsight tells us maybe that should have happened. So let's wait to see about that information going forward. But I, I would hate to think that council starts to second-guess senior staff. Um, uh, on the other hand, council needs senior staff to be very transparent and fulsome in providing information to the councillors because at the end of the day, you know, even if it's the error of somebody uh, several lines down who made uh, maybe the wrong call, uh, council, the politicians wear it. Uh, you know, the citizens don't go and say, you know, the, the, the third assistant to the uh, engineer next to the whatever, uh, let's blame him or her. Uh, they say, politicians, why aren't you doing your job in terms of oversight and due diligence? So I can understand why council needs to ask the right questions. Uh, look, we have a brand new uh, administration now in terms of the bureaucracy, a new city manager, a relatively new public works general manager, uh, some uh, engineers, uh, in charge of, of uh, operations uh, that are also new to the job who have actually uncovered some of this information. Let's give them a chance to kind of line things up in the right way. And then, by all means, I hope that the administration is fully transparent with the public in terms of here are the, here are the problems we had, here are the changes we've made, and here's why things will get better. In light of what happened with Red Hill, and you're right, it's probably going to take a long time before we get all the facts and figures about what happened there. And now this report about uh, about the link and the work that should have been done there. Is it fair, Larry, to ask city staff at this stage, are, are there any other reports here that you guys have in a bottom drawer someplace that council hasn't seen? <laughs> it, not only is it fair, it's, it's crucially important yeah. that that question has already been asked. I'll bet you the mayor certainly has, and I'll bet you some of the councillors. You know, Councillor Ferguson is now the chair of... Uh, uh, public works, and, and he's nobody's fool. He's, in fact, probably the best uh, uh, chair uh, right now, given his background in uh, in managing uh, huge projects in private industry. Uh, and he knows how to read these reports, and he knows and understands the, uh, the staff lingo as well. So my guess is that those questions have been asked. But my guess also is that staff, having been now twice bitten, uh, is probably uh, done a thorough investigation of anything that may be, be out there uh, so that they can have a, 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 some fresh eyes look at the information. 
and it, it it bothers me and and somebody like yourself who's been in politics for a long time and served as as a counselor in Stony Creek and of course here in Hamilton and then later as mayor there there has to be a level of trust between staff and council i, it, I mean if it's not you're going to run into a very dysfunctional city operation and that's not in anybody's best interest listen it's not only is it in everybody's best interest it's it's imperative if you want to move forward that there needs to be uh, an understanding of uh, the difference in roles. Uh, you know, the elected people have a different role as a board of directors, if you will, uh, and, and liaising uh, on the political side of things with community from the administrative role whose job it is to implement the policies that council puts together. And unless the two are in sync, unless there's some harmony you, where, where you understand that the roles are different but the goals should be the same, so that there's a, a, a so that there's an approach around the goals, the ends that you're trying to achieve, uh, that have to be absolutely in sync. If that doesn't happen, you have uh, disharmony and and chaos. Quite frankly, and Hamilton has had that. I mean, if we look back not too many years in the past, we've had this 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 divide between the administration and the political side that didn't lead to happy results. I don't think. Well, it's not very productive. I mean, that's probably an understatement. But you've got to have that level of trust, and you've got to understand that if you know if council says this is what we need to do, this is what we're going to spend, it's up to staff to carry out on that. And and if there's somebody on staff that's saying, like, you know, this it's it's starting to sound a little bit like the Trump White House now. Like, oh yeah, don't listen to what they're saying. We're just going to do this <laughs> this way. And I'd like to think. I hope I'm wrong. I'd like to think that's not what's going on there. But it sure looks like it. Well, no, I, I, oh my God, the Trump White House, let's not start on that topic. Um, uh, talk about dysfunctional systems and craziness. Um, no, I don't think we're nearly there at all. I, I, I know all of the counselors. Uh, some are brand new and I don't know them as well, but certainly all the ones that I've worked with uh, are sane uh, people. They're human beings. They will make errors. They'll say the wrong thing sometimes, maybe even do the wrong thing. And, and you know, I can point fingers at myself when I was involved politically as well. Not every decision was the best decision, uh, but the intention was always good, and I think all of these folks are well-intended. Um, and nor do I see anybody on staff saying ignore uh, the directives that council is giving. My point, and my earlier point, was that for council to give the right direction, they need the right information. That's where staff comes in. Staff is, is, you know, a gatekeeper in many senses of the word. Um, they, they decide what they put in front of council, uh, or especially around some of these, uh, you know, public uh, works kinds of uh, um, uh, reports that are done. Councillors aren't out there, um, you know, investigating which bridge needs work and which road needs resurfacing. Yes, they may in an anecdotal way, but they don't do the kind of investigation that might put a project up at, at the top level. And that's why they need staff to, to you know, provide the right information so that the right decisions can be made. Because these decisions um, not only impinge on public safety, but they also impinge on our tax dollars because public works is perhaps, you know, the, 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 the uh, millions and maybe, um, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the, the budget, the public works budgets, uh, you're talking about billions of dollars that are spent over years uh, to make sure that we have a safe, convenient city. And so these are important decisions. And unless the council gets the right information, they cannot make the right decisions. 
Well, uh, here's hoping they get their house in order in the short term. And, and, and obviously, I'd like to get some answers about what's going on here. But uh, we'll follow up on this later on. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great having you on the program again today. Great, Bill. My pleasure. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Diani. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Ontario's new gas pump decals that uh, warn against the dreaded federal carbon tax. Well, those are Ford's words, not mine. Uh, are going to be in place by the time of the federal election campaign, to be sure. Uh, they've ordered them right now. Uh, it's a very controversial issue, and, uh, well, we're going to get into this just a little bit because it's something we're all going to have to deal with. Uh, joining us in studio, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degree School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, are you ready for the, for this? This is, this is uh, in, in the government's mind, this is earth-shaking, and this is informative, and this is letting people know exactly what's going on. Uh, or it's just politics. Yes. Well, Bill, just before I answer that question, uh, something I get asked occasionally when I'm out in the, in the public and in stores, what have you, is people will come up to me and ask, why am I promoting one party's agenda or another party's agenda? Why are you promoting the liberals? Why are you promoting the conservatives? And I don't view our discussions as promoting one side or the other. What we're trying to do is just share some facts mm-hmm. so that people are better informed. Uh, this, this carbon tax is a very controversial thing. And obviously, if you don't believe that there's any chance climate change going on, then anything that you have to spend money on is a bad thing. So I, I get it. I understand that some people think this is just nature's natural cycle and why are we going through all of this. But I'm not one of those people. All the studies that I have read, 97% of climate change scientists say this is man-made and we have to do something about it. We've tried to do it voluntarily. We've asked people to cut back voluntarily. That hasn't worked. So the next best thing is a carbon tax. And and I'm telling you this, Bill, because it was in uh, 2018 that the Nobel Prize in economics actually went to an economist who studied this and said, if you want to reduce carbon dioxide, tax it. And that will get people to change their behavior. So I'm a supporter of the carbon tax in some form or another. I liked cap and trade. I thought that was less painful for you and I as individuals. But when that was rescinded by Doug Ford, I'm okay with a carbon tax. I want to stop you right there for a second, though. Because according to the Ontario Court of Appeals that already ruled on this, it's not a tax. It's not a tax. That's that's true. That's, that's a conservative right. talking point to say it's a tax. They say it's a price on carbon. Right. Uh, and that's the court's ruling. That's not politics. Uh, so uh, right off the bat, we kind of fall into that trap. And do. I, I do it, too, on yeah. a, an awful lot of the time. But uh, but that's it's very hard to separate the politics from policy in this situation. It is. And then I think the other thing about this, uh, this carbon... Um, um, I'm still going to call it tax. Carbon pricing. <laughs> carbon pricing is that... Um, it's actually supposed to be uh, an incentive for business to change their behavior more than individuals. I say that to you because when I filed my income taxes, as everyone else did in March or April of this year, we got a prebate of whatever we might have to pay over mm-hmm. the course of the year. Um, so I've checked what I cost when I fill up at the pump. It cost me about a buck every time I put 25 liters of gasoline in my car. I don't put in 50 times a year, so there's $50. I'm going to get back at least equal to what I pay. If not, I might be a little ahead a little bit. How is that possible? Because it's the businesses that are not getting it back, at least not directly. They have to do something to get this money back. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm not an opponent to this. So uh, I just want that to be out there. It's not because I'm a liberal or a conservative. It's just because I've studied it, and this is the facts that I see. I have been wondering, since Doug Ford made a big deal of this a year ago about this carbon pricing and and that he was going to put this decal on, I've been looking. Every time I fill up the pump, I've been checking the pump. Where's the decal? Where's the decal? So we have news 
uh, yesterday that the decal is going to appear on the pumps by August 30th. By law, you have no choice. If you own a gas station, you have to put the decal. You have to put it in the top two-thirds of the pump to make sure it's visible, and they want it on the same side as the handle. So as you're reaching for that handle, you can see this, this decal that's going to tell you that thanks to carbon pricing, you get 4.4 cents a liter now, and that's going to go up to, I believe, it's 11 point something cents in 2021. Great, so those decals are going to appear. What's not going to appear on the decals are, of course, that this prebate that we're getting is actually going to increase as well. This year, I think it was around $330. It's going to go up to $718 by that same period of time. Um, and so this reminds me a bit of Doug Ford and Buck Beer. You know, people, I'm doing this for the folks, the common folks. Um, and I, I just, I, I think it's silly to me, absolutely silly. It's costing the government a whopping $5,000 to buy these stickers. So it's not the money in this case, but it's a, just a, an exercise that very much in partisan politics because he wants them in place before we go to vote in October, just to remind everyone about that evil Justin Trudeau. Yeah, but the $5,000 price tag for the stickers themselves is, you're right, it's inconsequential, but it's part of the $30 million that this government has committed to fight carbon <coughs> pricing, because on a philosophical basis, he, and, and Premier Mo out in Saskatchewan, and, and yep. probably Jason Kenney now are going to jump on board and do this sort of thing, too. Uh, and they've already been defeated in one court. They're, Twice, they're probably gonna, Yeah, they're going to probably take it to the Supreme Court. That's the goal. But this, that's a, that is an awful lot of money to dedicate to really fighting a, a political policy. Well, it, it is, and and in many of these cases, Premier Mo, Premier Ford, even Premier Kenny say, we, we don't need this, we have a plan. And again, I, I'm not partisan here, Bill, but I, as an academic, read these plans, and I'm curious, okay, what are you going to do? And the difference between what the liberals are trying to do is an active plan to try to make some change in the climate. I look at the, the conservatives, whether it's Mr. Moe, who's not formally a conservative, but uh, uh, the Saskatchewan party and the others, theirs is more hope and, and uh, you know, we're just, we're going to hope the right things happen. And that's not what we need. We need some kind of an action. So uh, it is partisan politics and, and uh, it's coming. And I think, you know, again, here's the odd thing, Bill. Ontarians seem on balance smart enough to realize that some of these are relatively silly pledges. The whole buck of beer thing... <sighs> You know, it was much of a PR campaign, but the problem was no company actually wants to make beer at what they'd have to sell it to get it to the retail store for a dollar. They'd have to sell it for something like 25 cents a can. No beer, beer company wants to do that. So it's legal. Nobody wants to do it, and nobody really seems to care that much. Well, it's it's the the misinformation, and and, and I guess the and again, it's the spin. I guess that goes on to this. Uh, you're right. I mean, the sticker's not going to tell you about the rebates, although most people, I'm sure, are aware of that. Uh, the other thing that the sticker's not going to tell you is that had Ford left the cap and trade program that was in place yes. by the previous government, there wouldn't be a carbon tax because that was done at the industrial level. You and I didn't have to pay for that. Uh, there might have been incremental increases in some goods and services that we may have purchased, but uh, not to the extent that it is right now. So, I mean, he's 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 really blaming the federal government for something that he's done because it, it wasn't going to have an impact on us at all because the government uh, had already said that that cap-and-trade program qualifies, okay, we're not going to bother with carbon pricing in Ontario. He changed that, not the government. That's true. And, and you know, the other thing that came out, and, and these stories were in the spring, and I, I guess many people begin to forget them, but cap-and-trade was going to create a benefit. There was going to be money generated, actually billions of dollars generated through cap-and-trade, that the government was then going to reallocate. It wasn't to go into their general coffers, but they were going to reallocate to local projects to reduce 
emissions or promote alternative energy. So I know churches, for instance, that said, oh, okay, let's, let's uh, install some um, solar panels on the roof. Uh, we'll generate a little revenue stream for our church to allow us to keep going. And this was going to be funded out of the cap and trade. Oh, oh, no, that's been canceled. You don't get that. I know school boards who are looking to do renovations to their schools. And part of that was going to be to be more energy efficient. They were going to get money from the provincial government through cap and trade to do this. Those were canceled. And so we saw lots of, of uh, I understand the politics of this. If you didn't believe again in climate change, then cap and trade is silly. But there were going to be some positive benefits in the community, and there are people scrambling even now to do the the renovations or other things they wanted to do that there was going to be funded through cap and trade. It, you know, I, I get I get the fact that many people in Ontario, including Doug Ford, just hated Kathleen Wynne and they want to reverse anything she did, as the way Donald Trump reverses anything Obama did. But it. I don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. There were some good ideas. Maybe they weren't well executed. We could always fix on that. But just to throw everything out because now I'm in charge, it's a shame in some ways. Well, and the other element to this, too, and I understand that people that have partisan views are going to say, well, you know, this is wrong because it's done by the liberals. And others are going to say, no, it's right because it was done by the liberals. You're always going to get that. I understand. But the other element is, is the only other option here is to do nothing. And, and I think there's pretty general consensus right now that that shouldn't be an option. Right. So the, the question is, uh, of course, how, how much time do we have before doing nothing even starts to be irrevocable? Um, you might remember quite famously, uh, Miss uh, Ocasio-Cortez in the United States has given it 12 years. Uh, Theresa May, or not Theresa May, Elizabeth May, excuse me, Elizabeth May, head of the federal Green Party, uh, announced that she felt we only had a couple more years in Canada to make some changes or things would be irrevocable. I'm not sure. Client scientists uh, are, 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 when you ask them to project into the future, you have to make a whole boatload of assumptions, some of which may come true, some may not come true. But the idea is we need to change our behavior sooner rather than later, whether it is two years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, status quo isn't going to work anymore. And uh, I know I built a home in Dundas in 1995, Bill, and when I did that all those years ago, I took steps then. People ask me, what have I done recently? I haven't had to do anything recently because I put extra insulation in the walls, extra insulation in the roof. I use low energy lights and so on and so on and so forth. If I have been able to convert to LEDs or, or um, uh, compact fluorescence, I've done that. And so I've been working not to eliminate my carbon footprint, but to reduce it to a minimum that I think is sustainable. And I think this is a well-advised step for everyone to take because we need to keep this planet going for other people. I, I, I don't think there should be a lot of debate on it, but I, I, Bill, thanks to Facebook, and you've got Facebook followers. Oh, yeah. I have Facebook yep. friends. Uh, I see some of these posts that are, are very angry about climate change, and they really are adamant they don't believe it. And they'll find that one scientist out of 100 who publishes something that says, oh, this is all due to cosmic radiation or global storms or something. It has nothing to do with this. And they seize on to that rather than looking at the preponderance of evidence. I, I think things are tipping, but it's still a, quite a process. Well, and I know, because we've seen the arguments, and you're right, on a daily basis, I get them too on, on social media. Uh, and, and they're saying, for instance, why are we going through all this hassle here in Canada? Because we only have a minuscule portion of right. our carbon footprint on a global basis. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. Uh, you know, China and India are going to do what they're going to do. And by the way, they are starting to reduce. Sure. Uh, even they are. but uh, And they've got a lot more work to do than we do in a situation like this. But... Uh, <laughs> If you want to be selfish about this, maybe you don't care about the global situation, but I care about what's happening here in this community. And don't we have a responsibility to, to do what we can? 
Yeah, Bill, I, 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 unfortunately, I'm one of those people who can't let some of these fake news memes uh, survive without a bit of a challenge. And so that's one of my favorite ones. People will say, I don't understand why Canada is doing this. We only account for one and a half percent of the carbon emissions in the world. Go after the big guys. Go after China. Go after the United States. They're absolutely correct. We only account for one and a half percent of the carbon emissions. But our population is less than half a percent of the world's population which means that per capita, we're emitting three times the carbon of people in China. Now, yes, there's a lot more people in China, but it's a bit like saying, well, I can put out you know, two bags of garbage a week, even though I'm a single individual, because look at that family over there. They're putting out eight bags. Go after them first. But on a per capita basis, I'm the worst polluter. Why am I not getting my house in order first? And I think that's what we have to do. We can't go to other nations in the world and say, clean up your act, if we've not demonstrated that we can clean up our act at the same time. Well, and besides, the other and we've talked about this uh, with a number of, of uh, what we call independent uh, observers that have done the analysis on this. And by the way, some of them are conservatives, uh, and they are of the opinion that uh, that this is the best way to go. As a matter of fact, uh, I know this is a shock to an awful lot of the people that, that are, are opposed to what's going on here in Ontario or going on a national basis with carbon pricing. But the concept, as you've told us, of carbon pricing was actually developed by the Conservative Party. It, it's, it's a market-based way to deal with this. Uh, and it was a number of conservatives that, that actually put this policy forward. Preston Manning, the former leader of the Reform Party, uh, is a strong advocate of this. He doesn't like the way that Trudeau's doing it, but he likes the concept. And many other conservative yep. thinkers are the same way because it's market-based as yep. opposed to simply going after industry like this. So I, I'm always perplexed when I hear the arguments that are going from people like Ford and Andrew Scheer and others. Uh, why have you abandoned your conservative values on this? Because this this was your policy right now. Now, since the uh, the other government has has adopted it, all of a sudden you think it's a bad thing. Yeah, you mentioned Preston Manning, former Prime Minister Kim Campbell is also a supporter yeah. of this concept. Stephen Harper is not. He he is not on this board with this, and obviously Andrew Scheer is not on board with this. Uh, a couple other quick notes on this bill, if I can. D- uh, Doug Ford always likes to label this not just a, a carbon tax, but a job killing job killing carbon tax. And I have to again say to people, there has been absolutely no sign that there have been any jobs cost by the carbon pricing in Canada. Statistics Canada issued a report just a couple of weeks ago that said there have been tens of thousands of jobs that have been created in Ontario since this uh, this policy went into place in April. Uh, so that, that, that really just shoots that thing out of the water right now. So there's, there's a lot. That's what bothers me about this. A lot of misinformation. I, I don't listen. I don't like paying more for gasoline. I don't want. I'd like to pay a lot less for gasoline. <clears throat> I like to pay a lot less for everything. I get that. But at the same token, something has to be done. And this is the policy that the government has adopted, and, and most other uh, governments around the world are doing something yeah. similar to this. The other quick thing on this is, of course, the the idea that it was increasing gasoline prices themselves. Have you noticed the price of gasoline today? I, I went past the station at 106.9 a liter. That's cheaper than it was a year ago. Well, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to go up. The reality is that gasoline prices themselves, due to world forces on the price of oil and other things, move much more than the actually, at this point, relatively minuscule cost of the carbon price. Now, yes, without carbon pricing, maybe I'd be paying a dollar two at the pump and instead I'm paying a dollar six but I'm paying a lot less than a buck thirty a liter which was what we saw six eight months ago that's the the volatile nature of this so unfortunately if Doug wants to 
point at the pumps and say, blame the liberals for this. At the moment, he's pointing at the pumps and the gasoline is cheaper. It, it, it just is, It's a bit of a silly game to be playing, I think, in the first place. Well, and the other element to this, and I've talked about this uh, with the federal government, too, it doesn't matter who's in the corner office, whether it's conservative or liberal in this situation, is they're always going to put their spin on this. And, and the fact that he's going to put these stickers on here, uh, you look at the gas pump when they finally you go to fill up in the next couple of days and you see the sticker. Look at the other one that's been on there for a couple of years that tell you how much the provincial tax is that you're paying on that, too. And he doesn't talk about that. Well, one other thing he doesn't talk about is he actually said last year during the campaign that he was going to reduce gasoline prices by 12 cents a liter. The first 4.4 cents were going to come from killing carb and uh, cap and trade. But the rest of it was going to come from actually changing the amount the Ontario government uh, gets from taxes. Uh, in, uh, Bill, you mentioned taxing. And it's funny, we actually tax the tax. So there's yeah. an HST component, which then is on top of the other tax that Ontario collects. So he had announced that he was going to reduce that. He's not done one thing about that. Why? I think he discovered how much money the government generates from those taxes at the pump. And as he's trying to balance his books and what have you, he can't afford to get rid of that. So he'd made a promise. Why don't we put a sticker to remind people what he promised versus what he's delivered after a year and a bit in office? Uh, you but know, isn't again, that usual? Well, that's so typical, though. Politicians will make promises. I mean, uh, maybe the most famous one in recent history was John Cretchen saying, you know, elect me and I'm going to eliminate the GST, yep. which everybody hated at that time. Yep. That was brought in by the Mulroney government. And, uh, of course, they got elected. And I think somebody sat down with the premier or the, the new prime minister and said, you, you understand how much money you're going to lose if you do that? Oh, okay, never mind. Not mm-hmm. going to do that. And, and I think that's the, that's the financial reality that yep. a lot of leaders finally f- come face to face with. Well, as we often say about politics in general, it's easy to promise, it's hard to deliver. And, and uh, so w- why Doug Ford wants this sticker, why but Doug Ford was keen on Buck of Beer, he can then go to people and say, I promised and I delivered. But there are other much more important things that we need to deliver on that he has not been delivering on. Should we have stickers on school buses to talk about funding for classrooms? Should we have stickers on um, in hospitals to talk about funding for hospitals? It, you know, again, it, this just feels a bit like a silly campaign. I don't really understand the point of it, and I don't think it's going to make much difference to the average Ontario person. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School. Thanks for coming in. Great to see you again. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of controversy, lots of anger, and uh, that seems to be the norm, I guess, for the Trump administration. But uh, it seems to have exaggerated over the last couple of days. U.S. President Donald Trump's administration has unveiled a sweeping rule uh, that some experts say could cut legal immigration by half by denying visas and permanent residency to hundreds of thousands of people for being too poor. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Reggie, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. We knew there was going to be some uh, some immigration reform. I mean, Trump talked about that during the campaign a few years ago, uh, and he's talked about it pretty consistently since then. But did we see it coming as dramatic as it, as it did on Monday? Uh, no, we didn't. We knew that, uh, that that he was going to make some kind of change to the immigration system. We know that that's been kind of how Stephen Miller, one of his uh, big immigration policy advisors, has been trying to push things for the last couple of years. And we knew that any kind of reform would likely have a drastic feel to it. But the words and wording that was used and the way that this is being directed at specific uh, immigrants that are trying to come into the U.S. on a yearly basis is what is likely causing and sparking all of the outrage right now. Because at the end of the day, there are critics out there saying this is going to uh, put a significant impact on the economy of the U.S., based on the skill factor that these people would have brought into the U.S. 
Well, and, and I know that that seems to be a, a talking point that the, the Democrats have talked about for quite some time, about the economic impact it's going to have. But I guess there's, there's even, a, I guess, a more philosophical bent to this now as well, because uh, this seems to, as, as dramatic and, and as some people call draconian as this might be, Reggie, uh, it probably shouldn't surprise us because of some of the comments that Trump has made in the past about characterizing some of the uh, the countries where a lot of these immigrants would come from, African nations and others. Well, I'm not going to use the word, but you know what he called them. Uh, and, and that seemed to set the tone, I guess. So th- th- this, this, this legislation, proposed legislation, I guess, because it's not going to come into effect for a couple of months now, uh, really shouldn't come as a shock, I guess, to too many people. No, no, especially because the president has always been saying, look, if we're going to have immigrants come into the United States, if we're going to open our borders to specific people, they need to be highly skilled. They need to be better qualified. They need to be able to have money to come into the U.S. and be able to contribute to uh, society and contribute to economy. And that's how the Republicans are looking at it. That's how President Trump is looking at it, all because that's how Stephen Miller has been looking at it. But Democrats say we can't judge somebody based on their income if they're coming into the United States, because at the end of the day, this person or these people may be coming into the U.S., they may be taking jobs that Americans don't want to have, and then having those jobs are going to have the trickle-down effect to allow other people to stay employed. So there is a big push to say that we don't need to have, uh, you know, simply Ph.D. and and, and master's uh, uh, people coming into the United States to be able to take these jobs. Sure, there's going to be some savings by the number of people who are going to be impacted by not being able to get a visa, but I think that uh, you'll find the critics and and lawsuits starting to say the the negative effects of this are going to outweigh what the positive impacts will be the the key phrase and i guess the controversial phrase that uh, that's in this legislation is is public charges uh reggie maybe you could explain exactly to our listeners what what he means by that well, when you're talking about a public charge, it's any kind of social assistance that you're getting, whether it's uh, uh, food stamps, whether it is any kind of public housing voucher, whether it's any kind of social assistance like Medicaid uh, that, that numerous people receive on a yearly basis. And these are the people who are going to be targeted, whether or not you're coming into the U.S. and will need it, or you're already currently living in the U.S. and receiving those public services or those social services, and you were looking to change the path that you were on to potentially getting a visa. And that's where we're going to see the big impact with this because yes there are some people who who the republicans and the president are going to say are a drain on society because they're here undocumented uh they're paying their taxes but they're taking social benefits away from people who actually need it uh the problem is is that any number of issues can come up at any point during the year somebody who is been working in the u.s undocumented but paying their taxes is and is on a path to be able to obtain a visa if they're to lose their job uh for any number of months over the course of the year and need to go on some kind of social service, uh, that's going to now impact them despite the fact that they've been in the U.S. and they've been working. So there are some kinks that are going to need to be worked out because this is going to have a dramatic impact on people who unfortunately find themselves in an unexpected situation. Well, yeah, because I saw one estimate about the, the people you've just described here that, as you say, are already residents in the States and, and you know, working, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I've heard somebody say it was around 380,000 people. I, I think that's kind of on the low side. There's probably a lot more I would think that could be impacted by this. Absolutely. 380,000 might be the seasonal number that comes into the United States, but there are a good number of people who work all over the country in jobs that Americans simply don't want. Look, you had one, uh, one ice raid in Mississippi uh, that, that round up you know, more than 600 people, and that was just at a couple of food processing facilities in one state in a couple of towns. If you multiply that by the 50 states and the numerous towns that have these kinds of facilities and these kinds of jobs, there are significantly more than 3,000 people, plus you have the people that are coming in not only from Latin 
American countries trying to get into the U.S., but this is now going to have a global impact. This is going to be any country that has somebody trying to get a better life in the United States who may just be under the threshold of the 125% of the poverty line here uh, that's going to be negatively impacted by this. So, you know, while everybody is focused on what's happening uh, with these people that come up from Latin America and fr- uh, uh, from, from places further south, uh, this is going to have a global impact, and it is going to have uh, an impact on the U.S. economy, whether or not they want to believe it. Well, the, uh, the reference I've heard, I'm sure this is going all through the Beltway now in Washington since this was announced on Monday, uh, is the reference to the Statue of Liberty. And, of course, the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, and you've seen and I've seen it, of course, if you've ever visited New York City. Uh, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free and breathe free, except you can't have any government money. I mean, that seems to be the rule. I mean, it says if you cross these borders, if we do allow you in, don't ever think that you're actually going to get any of the benefits of being an American citizen. That seems to be the gist of this. Absolutely. And Ken Cuccinelli, who is the acting director of USCIS, has basically come out and said he was in an interview in NPR, uh, basically saying what was on the plaque of the, of the Statue of Liberty and then adding, uh, but make sure that you can stand on your own two feet. And that's a slight to anybody who has been looking for a better life in the USA, because at the end of the day, people who are fleeing some kind of persecution or issues in their home country, whatever life they're able to live in the United States, no matter how much money they're making, is likely going to be better uh, than what they have right now. But that's also a slap in the face to the people who are arrived in the United States at the turn of the last century who saw the Statue of Liberty as a sign of freedom, and nobody told them you need to be able to stand on your own two feet. America welcomed these people in and put those people to work and made America the country that it is right now. So, sure, we can look at the past and say that was one time and the present is a different time, but you can't change your fundamental philosophies uh, when you are looking at immigration simply because you have a couple of people who say that these people shouldn't be allowed in. Reggie, where's this going as far as the debate is concerned? Because this is, as we mentioned, a, a Trump administration policy. Uh, I, I know some Democrats are complaining about this in, in the Congress right now that say, wait a second, it's not his job to set immigration policy. That's, that's something that has to go through Congress. Is there a jurisdictional uh, argument to be made here? Well, I think that's why we're going to see a lot of things end up in court, because you're right, Congress does have the grounds to be able to make the policy and make the rules for what happens in the United States. They created a policy back in the 90s that had to do with immigration that dealt with public charge, but there was no broad understanding of what public charge was. It was just kind of out there as a word to be used in certain cases that might have been brought before any kind of court. The president is taking this one step further and saying, well, if the, if the law's on the book, I'm just going to reinterpret that, and we're going to use my executive abilities to be able to put this forward. So Congress does have the ability to do things. The president has an ability to get around things, and that's why we have a court system. This is likely going to end up at at the country's top court, which we know is starting to get stacked with judges that President Trump has put in there. So he does have, uh, at the higher echelons of the legal system, people leaning towards him. But you're going to see this work its way through lower courts and mid-level appeals courts before anything. And you're going to see, if this is not completely rewritten, you'll see appeals courts uh, start to pull it back so that it can not be put in place, or at least be put in place with restrictions on it. Because you're right, Congress is the one who makes the laws. The president doesn't just say he wants something. But i got to figure, Reggie, this is going to take years to settle if it's going to go through the court system. It will take years, and if President Trump happens to lose the election next year and we have a Democrat in power, you can imagine that it's likely going to be rewritten or completely pulled off the books. But this is something that the president is doing, and now Democrats are going to have to add this to their list of issues that they can't really come to terms on when it comes to the Democratic uh, uh, nominations heading up to the election next year. Because when it comes to borders, they're all on a different page right now, whether or not they want to consider illegal immigration uh, something that needs to be charged as an illegal crime or that they'll let people come over and take social services. 
services. So the, the Democrats are going to have to take this now and figure out how it fits into their policy, especially when it comes to something like health care, uh, because this is just another wrinkle that the president's throwing into the election that is really going to try to throw the Democrats off. There's, there's no grandfathering here, though, is there? As you, as you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, uh, you could be living in the States right now and have been there for quite some time, a number of years, and, and working and, as you say, paying taxes, being a quote-unquote good citizen. Uh, they could come knocking on your door and said, uh, you know what, you're going, you have to go. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's pretty scary what the ramifications of this could actually be. And that's why we say that it's likely a number that's higher than 380,000 people, because there are so many people that have been living in the U.S. for so long who may be in an unfortunate circumstance where all of a sudden they need to take uh, some kind of social assistance. And remember, a lot of these people are working for minimum wage jobs on farms and in food processing factories and in low-level uh, low level positions who aren't getting any kind of benefits, who aren't getting any kind of health care. So, of course, as they get older and leave the workforce or leave whatever they're doing, they're going to have to rely on Medicaid to be able to take care of them if they become ill and they need to uh, they need any kind of medical assistance so now all of a sudden that's being considered a public charge because it is a social program uh they're going to be looked at through a different eye by the government saying well look if you're using this social assistance right now and you've been doing it for the last year uh you may be one of those people who doesn't need to be in the united states so we're looking at what could be a big impact as this population and this generation of people in the u.s gets older and needs the help the twist that i think is upsetting an awful lot of people is 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 the fact that this is also going to have a, a, a huge impact on legal immigration, uh, not just the illegal, which Trump has seemed to have talked about and focused on uh, about the southern border. But this is this is worldwide. And as I say, even somebody who's gone through all the steps uh, and as you mentioned, at some point, it could be anything, lose the job, anything, ill health uh, and has to rely on, on some government program. All of a sudden, they're putting themselves in peril, aren't they? They, they are, and it could make people think twice about wanting to come to the U.S., which could have impacts down the road when all of a sudden there are not enough people uh, to be able to fill these jobs that the Americans simply don't want to take. Now, I need to say that this is not going to be imply or uh, applied rather to all immigrants who are trying to cross into the U.S. Uh, pregnant people, asylees, uh, people who are already on a green card who are permanent residents in the United States, these uh, people are going to be uh, left away from this new policy. It's simply a policy that's going to be put in place for new immigrants into the U.S. and for people who are trying to get into the U.S. That's, uh, that's how the, the, the Trump administration is trying to separate this right now to say that, well, we're not going after everybody. But this is uh, going to have an impact in other countries. There's got to, I would think, Reggie, be some international pushback on this as well. Because if I, as I read this, uh, what this uh, legislation does here is also gives uh, U.S. Uh, officials in foreign countries a lot more leeway and a lot more power about granting visas to people that may want to go to the States. Well, absolutely, because that's how a lot of people end up getting to the United States. Sure, you have these, these caravans that the president likes to call as they make their way through Central America and up towards the U.S. border. That's now been cut in half because of these policies that you have to apply for your first uh, sets uh, of immigration status in Mexico now if you're coming up from Central America. But around the world, if you can't cross into the United States easily because there's an ocean in your way or there are several continents in your way, uh, you need to go to your local embassy. And now your local embassy is going to be able to say, well, look, you don't make enough money. You are likely going to need some kind of social assistance. You're now going to be stuck here because we're not going to approve this visa for you. So yes, there are people not just, this is why I said it's not just a Latin American thing with people trying to get into the U.S. This is going to have a global impact uh, with people being denied any kind of access, and we could see uh, people taking drastic measures trying to get out of their country and into the U.S. by any kind of means now. The other element to this, too, that uh, I, I've, I assume is going to be part of this debate 
is the impact it's going to have on people that, as you mentioned, are already in the United States. I mean, if, if you're in that situation and, and, and you all of a sudden find that you need to apply or want to apply uh, for some sort of government assistance at some point in the future, uh, you're probably not going to do it. But if it comes down to something like health care, i, I got to figure, Reggie, this is going to have an impact on things like homelessness, uh, public health. Uh, the people are going to get sick because they're, they're afraid to actually go to a doctor and apply for something like this. Uh, this is going to have a, an impact, I would think, on, on a lot of big cities in the states and this is already a problem that people are having look we just had two shootings in the united states and there were people who were afraid to go and get treatment in the hospital because they were afraid that their immigration status was going to get in the way and they'd be deported before they were able to get any kind of help so they opted to stay uh, either injured or or, or or in whatever situation that they were in because that's the situation that immigration is in right now uh, when we're looking at the u.s government so this is going to have a big impact for people when it comes to health care who are not able to get something because all it takes is one person having some kind of illness that, that could potentially uh, metastasize and move its way around uh, a city and, and a state and towards the country because they weren't able to get any kind of help because they were afraid that that social charge, possibly needing Medicaid or just avoiding it altogether, is going to impact them going forward. So there are big words and big uh, big. Uh, 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 problems that this this legislation could have when it comes to place in October, uh, which is why we're going to see uh, the civil liberties unions, we're going to see uh, uh, NGOs and and, and uh, organizations trying to gather up these people and say we are going to fight for you in court because America was always standing there with open arms, letting people come in uh, to make the country better, and the Trump administration is trying to close those arms to make it a very select few. It's controversial. It's radical. Uh, are, are the Republicans falling in line behind Trump on this, Reggie? Well, the Republicans will always fall in line with President Trump, particularly those who need to be, uh, uh, who are up for election next year. So we are seeing some people line up. We're also seeing some people simply stay out of the debate, much like uh, always happens when the president announces something that's controversial. But you will see uh, the Republicans who, who are always in line with the president, who are up for election next year, uh, and who are in safe states that, that the president's immigration uh, kind of rhetoric has echoed uh, you know, well for the last couple of years. You will see those Republicans say there's nothing wrong with this. This is what the, the Congress passed in 1996, and they'll say we've just tweaked the wording in it to make it a little more effective. A great reporting on this, Reggie. Thanks so much for the time, and obviously this is not the end of the story. We really appreciate this, uh, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, Global News, Washington. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.